Well, the, <clears throat> the Buddha once said, uh, from complete and unexcelled liberation, I gained absolutely nothing. It's very, it's one of my, uh, it's one of those lines that uh, gives me goosebumps. From complete and unexcelled liberation, I gained absolutely nothing. And it contrasts with habitual mind, right, which is very interested in what I can gain. So we might easily frame our practice in terms of what I'm trying to do, what I'm trying to work on, what I'm trying to get or get rid of, uh, what I'm, you know, the sense of self is very firmly in the center of how we orientate to life generally. And so we tend to bring that orientation to our practice. And it rather pulls the rug out, for, this line of the Buddha's rather pulls the rug out from underneath that self-centered orientation. And in the Zen tradition, there's that uh, emphasis on what's called practicing with a no-gaining idea. Practicing with no gaining idea. So, I'd like to speak a little bit this afternoon about the inevitable, I mean, normal, self-centered tendency in the way we view life, and also some correctives some ways of countering our self-centered uh, orientation to practice. It's interesting that we may come to a, a retreat, for example, an event like this, with an idea of what we're hoping to get from it, hoping to gain from it, and yet, it's, it's also quite interesting, we're quite easily able to see. Uh, sorry, uh, if you're, uh, you're lying down, if you have some kind of injury or something, please feel free. But if it's not a case of injury, I have to ask you to sit. Okay, so could you sit against the wall and then you can stretch them? The Buddha's instructions for teaching the Dharma were not to teach people lying down unless they're dying. <laughs> so, uh, various kinds of injury or difficulty can be included in that, but otherwise just that request. And if you need to the support of the, back, uh, the wall or something, please feel free. He also said, don't, don't try to teach people Dharma if they're drunk. <laughs> But I'm assuming we're not having to face that uh, here. It's interesting that, you know, what do we get? What does the, the familiar sense of self, when I say I, self-centered, the familiar sense of self, what does it get from retreat? Actually, mostly, seems to me at least, when I go on retreat, 
it mostly gets humiliated. It's, uh, we come hoping that I'll feel restful, hoping that I'll feel peaceful, hoping that I'll feel better in some way, hoping that I'll be at rest. And there may well be moments of peace and rest and uh, beauty. But actually, if we look carefully, it's not that the familiar sense of self gets peaceful or gets rest. It's more oh, that we get some rest from the familiar sense of self. What the familiar self, sense of self gets on retreat is it gets to it gets its own uh, restlessness, its own neediness, greediness, laziness, craziness, reflected up close to it. Trungpa Rinpoche, once, uh, when asked to describe this practice, called it one insult after another. <laughs> and, and therefore, right, and therefore it's not easy to be on retreat. Moments, and many of you have spoken about moments of beauty and grace and insight and gratitude and sensitivity. Wonderful. And yet many moments where it's not easy to, to just put ourselves in front of, as it were, that self-centered tendency and watch and feel as it, as it, um, as it is, just, is confronted with awareness. And so we have this hmm, seeming, at least, paradox, where on the one hand, practice looks like and is often presented as a working on oneself, a looking at oneself uh, uh, or something. And at the other hand, we're trying to dissolve or resolve our self-centeredness. And we might even say that's particularly true in an environment like this, right? So this we were a retreat or a practice intensive, we called it. So as a practice intensive, we're devoting all our hours of the day to this sincere and uh, noble endeavor of trying to dissolve and resolve self-centeredness. But what, what's our way of devoting all hours of the day to dissolving and resolving self-centeredness? Paying attention to me all the time. Right? So there can be a paradox there as well. Of course, this is a meditation retreat. This is time where one has the precious resources to slow down and to really turn one's attention to what's going on here. And not to mistake the whole breadth and depth of Dharma practice for just meditation. And that'll become clear, hopefully, when I speak about some of the correctives. And two, so two difficulties we can get into in terms of that. One is the, the spiritual, what we might call the spiritual trap, right? where we're busy trying to look beyond self beyond me, I, for some freedom from self, some space around self, 
some liberation from self. And there's a beauty and depth to that, and yet if we're not careful and attentive with that, and if the way uh, teachings and practices aren't skillfully held and presented, that can, the, the difficulty of that is that we can easily be rather dismissive of self, trying to get rid of self. Right? Trying to, with the hope that we could get rid of the messiness of self, the neediness of self, the confusion of self, etc., and yet, in pointing ourselves away towards some hope of freedom from or space around self, and therefore in dismissing self, we don't actually resolve the self-centeredness at all. Even if we might find some access to uh, moments of managing to make it quieten down. So various trance states will make the familiar sense of self uh, quieten down or disappear. Concentration states can make the sense of self disappear. And those can be very energizing and actually relieving and restful. And yet, if, that's, if the direction of our practice is just to get away from self, we don't correct for, we don't understand, we don't resolve the mechanisms of self-centeredness. And so when the concentration state fades, when we awaken from the trance, as it were, oh, familiar self-centeredness is back again. And the other trap we might call the psychological trap. So the first spiritual trap tends to look, be looking, trying to get beyond self. Psychological trap is we say, well, well, let me look into myself. Let me understand myself. Of course, a lot of skillful and important work can be done with psychological inquiry. And yet, if we're not careful, or if the, those practices and explorations aren't skillfully held and presented to us, we can actually end up in that exploring the self, understanding the self, in just reinforcing the sense of my story. And one sees that sometimes, amidst the skillful and important psychological work that can happen, sometimes one sees, oh, somebody's done so much psychological work, and they know their story so well, and I can tell you in great detail about what happened to me as a child with my parents, and and the, the retelling of the story, and the retelling of the story isn't giving insight isn't to it, isn't seeing through it, isn't resolving the self-centeredness, but is reinforcing the story of all of this being about me. So, here we are. Here's the raw material of our practice. We want to explore, the way we've been speaking about explore, the nature of body, mind, world, without reinforcing those kind of clumsy categories.
within Buddhist practice, there are some important and skillful correctives for self-centeredness. In the Theravada tradition, for example, the foundation of Dharma practice, prior to meditation, the, the foundation, Buddha says, the foundation of this practice is cultivating generosity. Generosity as a foundation for happiness. It's not trying to talk, it's not trying to present some uh, generosity as a moral good. It's a good thing to be generous to others. Speaking about generosity as a foundation for happiness. We we know that. We know that it's a delight when one has the opportunity or makes the opportunity to be of service to somebody else, to uh, provide some resources for somebody else, to support somebody else. We know that the particular kind of warm glow, the feeling of goodness, the happiness that arises from that generosity. And what the cultivation of generosity does as a Dharma practice, it embeds us in the the web of life as a web of mutual support. We're incredibly supported by life. And by every, by the, just the elements of life, I mean, just the when we actually contemplate it, oh, the earth is holding us up. The air is just breathing us. We must have seen this week that I'm not doing breathing. If I was responsible for breathing, right? How how good are you at just remembering, and staying? Con- if you're in charge of breathing, you last just a few breaths. And then, oh, so I just forgot. (laughs) Imagine if you were trying to manage this whole biological system. Breath, you want to pump the heart and get the blood going round. It's just this whole mysterious being here. Just the very fact that consciousness is animated, that body sustains itself for however long it does, in whatever condition it does. Just the support of the very elements of life. And then the support of all the myriad elements, all the countless beings. Actually, when we sense into it in a contemplative sense, every single element in the entire universe is in complete support of of just this sitting here right now. And the recognition of that has got nothing to do with whether it's morally a good idea or not to be generous. The sense of uh, the heart's participation in that web of support. Generosity as an antidote to self-centeredness. Generosity as a resource for a certain kind of buoyancy in life feeling, oh, I can offer, I can give, I can support, in whatever way, with whatever resources we have, whether those are resources of money, or time, or energy, or listening, or care. It's, uh, uh, it's 
a quality that counters our self-centered tendency, our tendency to conceive of life and think about life and reinforce a sense of life that otherwise is all about me. It's nothing new to have a sense of me. And yet, we are living in a society that's very particularly and (coughs) intensively individualistic. Pretty much all societies in all of human history, in all different cultures, at least until very recently, maybe means the last, the last few hundred years, last few, last 20 or 30 generations, <coughs> hasn't had anything like such a focus on the individual. Poor old Descartes, the dreadful idea that I think, therefore I am. That's one of those kind of early moments one can see of the crystallization of individualistic tendency. Many societies, most societies, at least up until that time, if not beyond, actually one's sense of being was much more tied up with a sense of belonging. A sense of recognizing oneself as a part of, a part of a community, a part of a uh, the various unifying factors, whether those unifying factors were uh, to do with language or to do with religion or other cohesive factors. But for whatever reasons, uh, with the benefits and blessings and with the difficulties, we live in a, in, a, in a society and at a time where individuality is, is so part of the fabric that we we've in, think very primarily in terms of how important it is to be an individual. And we're very encouraged to, to do what we want, to get what we want, to go where we want to go, etc. And so, On the one hand, we can see that, like you see that in the shift of the, the culture around Dharma practice and teachings embedded in its centuries-old context in Asia. And then we see the influence of a kind of modern individualistic culture in the reinventing or readapting of Dharma teachings in a modern uh, individualistic, not centuries-old way of doing it, like Gaia House. It's not centuries old way of doing things. This is a, when did Gaia House start? 1984, 31 years. And yet, how easily we get certain kind of orthodoxies that seem like, oh, that's what Dharma practice is like, that's what retreat's like. It's interesting that particularly in European and North American, or you might use this clumsy term, the Western context, there's some idea often of having left behind the orthodoxies that were there in the Asian traditions, left behind a lot of the rituals uh, and, and, or, and chanting and some of the belief structures that filled out the context of Dharma practice. But human beings being what we are, we've just invented our own orthodoxies. Like silence on a retreat is a kind of orthodoxy. 
the slippers. You've got to have slippers to come on retreat. That's, uh, you know, oh yeah, we take the shoes off at the door, so then we'll put slippers on in front of me in the house. And the way things run with bells and orthodoxy, elements of the schedule orthodoxy. In many retreats, the period of time of 45 minutes has been enshrined as the time that meditation lasts for, etc., etc. So, as we just recognize, like I say, it's nothing conceiving in terms of me, constellating around a sense of self is nothing new. But the particularly hyper-individualistic, we might say, elements of uh, the, the, the way we live, um, modern life, post-modern life, uh, post-modern, there's a very individualistic term, right? Postmodern view, everybody's right, everybody, everyone's valid, everyone's got a right to, etc. So the importance of looking at how is our practice following, maybe, the hyper-individualistic t- tendencies of our society, and how are we, how can we correct for hyper-individualism, maybe, but at least, how can we correct for the tendency to be self-centered? How can we correct for the tendency for my practice to have a gaining idea? To be all about me. Some of the correctives are behavioral correctives. Like generosity. It doesn't mean just to think generous thoughts. It means to actually be of service to others. A sense of seva, Sanskrit word or Pali word, for service, being of support to others, embedded in the fabric of uh, what Dharma practice is. And when, if our Dharma practice revolves around meditation and around retreat, well, retreat, well, we can, a little bit of savour, we wash up each other's plates, right? And we sweep the corridors for each other. And actually, it's very beautiful that that's happening. It's something important about that being part of the fabric of a retreat centre, rather than there just being a bunch of paid staff doing everything and us just breezing about, meditating very preciously. And yet, nevertheless, the setup of a retreat is such that the silence and the simplicity and the solitude are set up that this isn't the context in which service happens. So you might say, if you love this practice, if the promise and potency and potential of this practice are really alive for you, you might ask, what behavioral correctives are there against the tendency for self-centeredness. In what ways can you, in the context of your life, practice generosity? In what ways can you be of service to others? For the benefit that can bring to others, and as a foundation for happiness, for the buoyancy of one's own heart. Self-centeredness will tend to feel in terms of what I need, what I want, and what I don't have. 
That's where self-centeredness easily goes, to a sense of lack of deficiency. Right? Oh, I wish I had. If we, we might uh, come in our car and then we might look at the other cars in the car park. Right? And the tendency, just the normal self-centered tendency, if we look at a range of cars in the car park, the by far more stronger tendency is to look at the nicer cars and think, oh, I wish I, that would be a nice to have a car like that. Right? Rather than, equally possible tendency, to look at the old bangers and say, wow, what good fortune I have. We have the car that I have. Or to arrive in the old bangerist banger of the car and then to know, what do you, what, where does the mind go? Usual self-sentency, or old banger, me. <laughs> but it might be just as possible to just appreciate that uh, that old banger has just gotten you from wherever to wherever. I'm not sure that's uh, the best Metaphor again. It's a, it's a good one. When I teach in the U.S., cars are always a great uh, way to illustrate anything. You can <laughs> illustrate all points of the Dharma with reference to cars. <laughs> but the the nature, the kind of the gravitational pull of self-centeredness is to conceive in terms of what's wrong what I don't have, what I wish I had, how I wish I was, etc. And the corrective for that with generosity, with service, with being of support to others, is that rather than the emphasis going to what I don't have, the emphasis goes to what I'm able to offer, how I'm able to be of support. And that movement has an expansive quality to it. It goes against the gravitational pull of self-centeredness. It radiates. It spreads out. And various other corrective practices in the Buddhist tradition that uh, foster that kind of radiant quality, that spreading out. The Brahma-Vihara practices, if you're familiar with those, the heart-quality practices, metta. The quality of metta, care, goodwill, is it's a radiant quality. It's concerned with caring for what's here. That doesn't just mean, it's often actually perceived, hyper-individualistic culture, it's often perceived as, oh, one metta towards oneself and metta towards others. But actually, that, I would say, that way of conceiving of it is a product, is a very recent invention, and it's a product of individualistic culture. I don't see any evidence for that in the, in the texts. Buddha just talks about the radiance of metta. Metta radiating in all directions, outward and upward and downward and inward. Radiating, right? care for all beings, and that care that can be cultivated And that's not one that either emphasizes all beings as being out there somewhere, or, well, let me start and get this sorted out first, and then I'll take care of other beings. It's just all beings. And one finds oneself as one of all beings, in the company of all beings. (laughs) 
that sense, particularly in the Mahayana tradition, of practicing in the company of all beings. There's a corrective, again, to self-centeredness. The sense that uh, we're not doing our practice in a vacuum. And, again, just in a retreat environment like this, we're not doing our practice in a vacuum. There's an extraordinary amount of support here. And you may feel at times that sense of receiving support, receiving the support of the staff, receiving the support of the generosity of everybody who's been here previously and through their own uh, generosity have, have purchased and maintained and keep this place going, etc. The support of just everybody else sitting here with you. Imagine if nobody else was on the retreat and we just posted the schedule and you just... Mm. <laughs> right. No, there's something incredibly sustaining and supporting about others being here. And in exactly the same way, not only in terms of receiving that support, but your presence. You're participating in contributing to that web of support. You're part of that web of support that anybody else is receiving in the same way as one's receiving it oneself. And one can invoke that quality. It's important to evoke that quality. Otherwise, self-centered tendency, right? If one's caught up in that inner loop of self-centeredness, one doesn't feel the support one is receiving, nor the support that one is providing. What one feels is, oh, my, my mind and my body and my cup of tea I want to have and my lunch and my bed and my rest and my needs and my problems and my dukkha. Oh my, that's, that's, a, that's a narrow place, that's a tight place to be caught in. So of course we, we, we come to practice with self-centered tendency. Of course we notice that kind of movement. Right? It's not that that's wrong, it's not trying to pathologize that, but it's seeing oh, how we can correct for that, how we can uh, have our practice have a more radiant quality, a more expansive quality, a more inclusive quality, a more joyful quality. Joy. In one of the other Brahma Vihara practices, cultivating a light-heartedness, a joyful spirit, turning the attention to that which nourishes and delights the soul. And sometimes we can, uh, again, that's, that's a sort of a recent product of Buddhist practice. I don't know what happened when Buddhism got to Europe, but it got very serious. And often we come across very, can, the spiritual scenes generally can be very earnest. I read a very interesting article yesterday about a Tibetan uh, refugee living in the U.S. In uh, I think it was in New York City, and um, going to visit an an American uh, Tibetan Buddhist center, and just not recognizing anything that was happening there, and their associations with Buddhism as something that wasn't just about a practice, but was embedded in the whole cultural fabric of the person's sense of identity, 
was very much about community. Anytime going to the temple always meant taking a picnic right? and meeting friends there, and it meant dressing up nicely and getting blessings from the Lama. And uh, it was like really fun. Going to the temple is fun. And then it, <laughs> she, she went to this uh, temple in New York City, and it was, oh my God, there was no fun there at all. Everyone was rather quiet. And they were sort of murmuring and <laughs> doing their prayers and their beads. And she said, oh, normally in her experience, the prayers are always done much louder than that. So that there's always enough people chanting and, and doing all the prayers so that at any given time you can stop. And everyone else is carrying on. You can chat to the person <laughs> next door. And you can kind of take a break and catch up on the news. And that which fosters that sense of community. And it's so joyful and resourcing, nourishing, enlivening to go to the temple. So, oh, here's a temple in New York City. Great. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, of course, there's a place for a, a kind of quiet, respectful, contemplative, uh, inner turning uh, momentum and there's also a place and a need for cultivating something alive something juicy something fun and some other traditions are much better at having fun Sufis are good at having fun they dance all night and whirl around the Hindu tradition, they're good at fun, singing bhajans, ecstasy, and sweets, and tea all night long. <laughs> right, right, right. Fireworks throwing paint at each other, colors, a lot of delightful festivals. If you're uh, in the creative field, think up some Buddhist fun. The Bodhisattva vows are a, uh, a very beautiful corrective to self-centeredness. Mm. So, different translations of the Bodhisattva vows, but a uh, few lines. Living beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. The poisons of the mind are numberless. I vow to purify them all. Teachings are numberless. I vow to understand them all. The path is endless. I vow to walk it to the very end. Very beautiful and yet one can have a variety of responses to those vows. And largely the response depends on which part you hear. If you, just, if you mostly hear the first part, beings are numberless, poisons are numberless, teachings are numberless, and the path is endless. Oh dear. That's sometimes the, the feeling we have about our practice, about life, it's like, or about the plight of the world, for example. It's like, oh, I, like, I don't want to be self-centered, I want to serve, I want to be generous, but oh my God, there's so much to do. Beings are numberless. Problems are endless. Politics is, is limitlessly rotten, etc., etc. And the sense of that it's endless, problems are endless, 
the path is endless, can have a very dispiriting effect. If we hear the other half of the vow, I vow to save all the beings, to purify all the poisons, to understand all the teachings, and to walk to the very end of the path. It's like, oh my God, I better get going. (laughs) And so one may feel initially rather inspired by that, and yet, of course, one will burn out. And, and uh, sometimes we, we, we sit or we engage with life in that kind of right, I'm you know, gritting our teeth, I'm going to get there, I've got to get there, I've got to do this. And so uh, the first half, if we hear the first half of the vow, there, there can be a collapse into, oh dear, I can't, poor me, it's too much. And self-centeredness collapses into overwhelm. If we hear the second half of the vow, self-centeredness constellates around the doing. I've got to do it all. I've got to save all beings. I've got to understand all the teachings, etc. So there's a kind of very beautiful corrective against those two extremes of self-centeredness in the paradox of the vow. Beings are endless. So I'm never expecting to arrive at some goal of having done it all. And yet I vow to to save them all, to engage, to show up, to do what I can. Poisons are endless. So I don't have to give myself a hard time about the fact that there are still some neuroses or uh, issues or contractions arising here in consciousness. But I vow to purify them all. I can engage. I can inquire. I can explore. I can meet my experience in such a way that frees it up and frees it up and frees it up. The path is endless. I vow to walk it to the very end. Sometimes I just repeat that to myself. I went for a walk this afternoon and I was just singing that to myself. And though the road is endless I vow to walk it to the very end, and though the road is endless. It's beautiful walking up and down the field there. If the road is endless, I don't need to measure how far I've got, nor how far I think I still have to go. And my business is just the walking the moving through, the engaging with. Engaging with this life, this mystery, this expansiveness. So these, in a way, are very practical ways of correcting for self-centeredness. And I'm not trying to demonize self-centeredness. Like I say, this is the condition we arrive in, the, the nature of actually establishing a more or less well-adjusted, more or less healthy psych- adult psychology. Right? You've made it to experiencing life as being a self. That's already pretty good. And yet, there's more. And that, in a way, points to the particular brilliance in the Buddhist tradition of cutting through self-centered tendency. 
We were speaking this morning about engaging with our practice in such a way that we're sitting without regard to, in such a way as to meet our experience without the idea that there is a body, or that there is a mind, or that there is a world, or that there is a self. Engaging experience in its immediacy, in its fluidity, and in its ambiguity. And that's maybe the ultimate corrective for self-centeredness. When the fifth Zen patriarch was dying, he asked the monks who would like to be the abbot after him to write a poem to express their realization. And the senior, the head monk, wrote a poem which said, This body is a Bodhi tree, the mind a mirror bright, and hour by hour we polish it that no dust may alight. And all the monks said, Oh, sadhu, sadhu. Beautiful vision of practice. This body is a Bodhi tree, rooted in the earth, reaching up to the sky, grounded in life. The mind a mirror bright, luminous, reflecting whatever appears. And hour by hour we polish it. This practice of just attending to the reflections of mind, attending to what we've been calling the interface between awareness and experience polishing in this way that no dust may alight, that we may know moment by moment the luminosity, the mystery, the expansiveness of being, of consciousness. So people were delighted with the poem, but then Huey Neng, the kitchen boy, said, I, I've got a poem I'd like to offer. And Huey Neng's poem was, since there is no Bodhi tree, nor mind of mirror bright, since all is void and empty, where could the dust alight? We come to practice with a self-centered tendency. Of course we do. And we're able to do beautiful things despite that self-centered tendency. We're able to see something of the sacredness of finding ourselves in a human condition. We're able to attend to body as something important to take care of. Attend to mind as something mysterious and wondrous to, to, to polish and see its luminosity. And there is a progressive element. There is a polishing which yields beautiful results. We've been speaking about that the last couple of days in terms of this purificatory nature of practice. The best way to honor that f the, f the first poem of understanding is looking backwards at the trajectory of your practice, particularly because self-centered tendency, like we say, tends to think in terms of uh, deficiency or lack. We tend to think, oh, what's wrong with my practice? Oh, yeah, I'm not very concentrated. Oh, I'm still not, uh, da, da, da. Oh, I still get pain in my legs when I sit, etc., etc. Oh, I'm not as generous as I could be. Oh, I'm not committed to walking to the very end of the path, etc. 
But whatever the longevity of your practice, particularly if you have at least a few months or many of you have some years of practice, look back and you can see the effect of that polishing of the mirror of mind. You can see the effect of the inhabiting of the Bodhi tree, the tree of awakening of physical life. Very helpful to look back in that way and and so as to see that despite all the ways I may have given myself a hard time and all the ways I may uh, criticize my own practice and find fault with with it, that something's got purified, transformed, freed up. That I'm able to recognize a condition where there's there's more sensitivity and less reactivity and more capacity to understand my experience and to have space around my experience. Beautiful, important, wonderful. That's the, the, ble- the purificatory blessing, as we might say, of our practice. But it's not helpful, the progressive mo- model, in looking forward, which is the way we usually tend to. Oh, how much longer is there to go? Right? Or we fantasize what would happen if only I was, if only I got more concentrated, or if only my legs didn't hurt so much, or if, any, if only I could... Go to a cave like real yogis do. If only I didn't have to work, or if only I didn't have children, or if if only my partner was more understanding, then I could really. The if only suggesting that some sense of progression reaching forward, of getting somewhere, of getting somewhere, of getting somewhere. Huey Neng, the kitchen boy, knows. We're not destined to get anywhere. Self-centeredness is completely caught up in where it, in getting somewhere, in where it's going. And the real libera- the liberation, both the progressive liberation from self-centeredness that we can see in the trajectory of our practice until now, and the uprooting, liberating effect of completely seeing through self-centeredness is freeing ourselves from the idea of getting somewhere. Freeing ourselves from the idea of that there's somewhere that the problem happens, that the dust alights. Freeing ourselves from the idea of the one who can or can't or should or shouldn't or is or isn't. So we sit in the fluidity and the ambiguity and the mystery and the immediacy of our experience. We sit in the, in the heart of what we call, for the sake of convenience, body and mind and world. And yet we find that it's all just right here. In this sound, in this touch, in this aliveness. We attend to our experience, finding a way to be intimate So that what this reveals is that there is no Bodhi tree. That body, our body, 
This body of life isn't a thing. It doesn't have edges. That mind cannot be reduced to the ideas and images of mental activity. That when Shui Neng says all is void and empty, that in the, the way in which our experience can't reduce itself to understanding, Self-centeredness finally gets its rest, its relief, its undoing. So, living beings are countless. May you row them all to the further shore. Poisons are endless. May you purify them all. Teachings are numberless. May you understand them all. And though the path is endless, may you walk it to the very end. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.